near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, what near-death experiences may teach about life on the other side, as well as the music album Home. Today we're going to share the experience of Catherine from Enderf.org. Catherine says, I was out of my body, but not seeing with my eyes. I knew something had happened during surgery that was life-threatening. It was somehow understood that as a spiritual being, I needed to be outside of the body, as it might not have been usable anymore. While I do remember a bright light about the place I went, I do not remember a journey through a tunnel. I remember floating toward a light. I arrived at a place with both gorgeous wildlife and beautiful buildings. I don't remember being met by family members or friends who had passed. I do remember a sense of familiarity with the beings who greeted me. One of them was a dog, my childhood pet. The way I experienced knowledge and information wasn't through human means. I experienced a sort of fused knowledge where I had access to different aspects of knowledge if I focused in on whatever it was I wanted to know. In this way, I'd immediately know the answer to what concerned me. The best way to describe information is through a series of emotional impressions which I accepted as truth because there was no concept of untruth or lies there. Physically, I did not have form in the usual way. If I thought that I should have form, I would assume a human form. If I didn't think about it, I was a contained essence, but weightless, and maybe even made of light. Two beings guided me into one of the buildings for a life review process. I believe these buildings were constructed as blending with the natural environment. They were open like pavilions. If I thought about them, I think they assumed more form. If I didn't think about them, they assumed less form. What I do remember is a screen as if on a table. The screen was like a touch screen. I never had access to this technology at the time of my NDE, so I didn't know a thing like that existed. I reviewed my life like a movie, except that I could pause it and zoom in to different important times during my life. 
I could examine these times from multiple perspectives, such as the people they affected. When I think of this review now, I imagine it must have taken up a very long time in Earth time had I done the same thing here. However, at this place, the concept of time didn't translate very well. Time was now, and it only passed in a linear fashion because I organized the different events as happening in a certain order when I reflect on it. It's extremely hard to explain, but it was nothing like time on Earth. After the life review, I was taken before more beings, which seemed to be wiser than the two who brought me to my life review. I communicated with them about my decisions during my life review and areas where I could improve. While it was a collaborative process, I had deep respect and reverence for these beings. I felt that they loved me completely and without any judgment. In psychology, there's a term to describe this called unconditional positive regard. I felt completely sure that they had this feeling for me. This surety felt like a warm glow of light around me. The conclusion of these conversations was that it wasn't so much a decision of doing the wrong thing in situations or making unwise choices, but that the times of greatest challenge for me were times in which I could have acted but chose inaction. It was concluded that when I returned to Earth, I must choose action and use my experiences and feelings to guide these actions so that they be an act of love. Before I went back to Earth, there was an agreement of some sort that I could stay in a certain area of this place, but I could not go deeper into this city. For example, I couldn't find out more information about the future of my life, even though I knew I'd forget upon returning if I did. Instead, I stayed in an area of beautiful gardens. These gardens were greener than green is on earth, and the colors were vivid and rich. While I was in this place, I was weightless. I could access all knowledge I could think of. I also felt no pain because I didn't have a body. No weight, no pain. It was like it was impossible to be clumsy. It was also impossible to be anything other than truly myself. I felt as if I was more myself there than here on earth. I spent what would be, in earth terms, a great deal of time in these gardens, talking to the people there. One of the people there was an ascended master. At the time, I decided to call this master Jesus. But when I look back, it was as if this person was a spokesperson for God who had special access to divine intent. We talked for what could have been hours or even days on earth. It was always light there, as if it was continuously in the afternoon. This wasn't bothersome to me, though. I believe it was like that because I thought it should be like that. Unlike being around people on earth, I felt completely energized and refreshed from the social exchange. 
I'm an introvert on earth, so this was a very striking difference for me. I do not remember what we spoke about except that it involved special knowledge, which I don't have access to on earth. What I got out of this experience before leaving was that I must choose action instead of inaction. I must behave in a way that would help bring more awareness and love to the world. The Ascended Master told me that I needed to go. While I was never asked specifically if I was going back or not, it was understood that I was going back to go back. I do not remember the journey back to my body, but I don't believe I went back to my body and then woke up. I think I went back to my body and then gradually came out of anesthesia sometime afterwards. The first thing I remember when I woke up was that I was back in the hospital room. My father was sitting next to me. He commented that I was very lucky to have survived the surgery because there were some complications during surgery. I can't remember whether or not I talked to him about my experience, but I think I made some simple comment like, I had a dream or I had a vision. That is the end of Catherine's experience. And my goodness, we could zoom in on all kinds of things in this, uh, in this account. There are some really cool stuff that she talks about. She talks about seeing uh, beautiful wildlife and buildings and um, landscapes. Uh, she remembers floating towards a light, even though she doesn't remember going through any kind of tunnel. She encounters a childhood pet, a dog that she'd had as a child, and uh, her description of knowledge and how it seems to be received there is very interesting. She says it's it wasn't through human means, the, the knowledge that she got. Um, it was sort of fused knowledge, she says, where I had access to different aspects of knowledge if I focused in on whatever it was that I wanted to know. And then she would immediately know the answer to what was concerning her. And then there was no concept of lies or untruth there. So the idea that these things might not be real or might be deceptions doesn't seem to have even entered the, the you know, options there. I'm not sure what that means, but, but that's very interesting. She even describes the knowledge as coming, not as like words or, you know, uh, mental concepts, but rather a series of emotional impressions, which she accepted as truth because there was no concept of untruth or lies there. Interesting. Then when she describes her form, it's very interesting because she says that if she concentrated on her form, she clearly had a human form, what we might call the spirit form, spirit body form. And if she didn't, she would simply, you know, if she didn't concentrate on it, she would simply have an essence, a, a sort of weightlessness uh, that she describes as being made of light. Um, there was just less form. It didn't have form in the usual way, which I would often describe as the intelligent consciousness form. This is a really interesting um, thing, and, and she describes even the the uh, landscape around her, the the elements of 
what's around her as you know she concentrates on them they would become more vivid more clear more you know explorable if you will and if she didn't concentrate on them they kind of fade into the background and uh, it's kind of interesting hearing it that way it sounds very you know fantasy like to us in a way but when you think about how attention works here in mortality it's not terribly dissimilar than this but it, rather than the uh, details appearing or disappearing as we pay attention to them they simply fade into the background of our awareness such that you can walk past a group of 10 people and then be asked what color shirt were any of them wearing and unless you there was something particularly bright or noticeable about the color of one of their shirts you're probably not going to remember much if any of their shirt colors it's it's a matter of attention it's not that uh, that one of them had more color in their shirt than another it's rather that you draw attention to that color and you're more likely to remember it you're more likely to to have a detailed concept of it and yet it seems in the spirit world at least for Catherine that seems to happen much more literally very interesting very interesting she describes her being able to get around without bumping things it's it's like everything is just kind of flowing weightlessness um, she could access all the knowledge she could think of there was no pain no weight she said it was impossible to be clumsy uh, and it was also seemed to be impossible to be anything but her true self and in fact she describes it as feeling more of herself there than she ever did on earth and that does make sense to me because we are so bound down by our filters by the the background and the foreground and the everything in between that makes up our lives we we identify ourselves by our favorite baseball team or basketball team or maybe by how we you know what time we wake up in the morning a morning person night person you know it's like it's like we have these identities that we give ourselves and then we try so hard to stay true to them that we're not actually being true to ourselves and that seems to happen with all of us at, at throughout our lives and maybe not non-stop all the time i think we have glimpses of our true selves and we sense that when they happen i think but so much of what we do is surrounding what we've decided about who we are and what we want to be true or what we don't want to be true even our attention to the negative makes us to subconsciously identify with those things and see ourselves as being that rather than being these eternal beings that are housed in mortal broken bodies so in the spirit world it seems that you are much much closer to your true self at least that seems to be the way Catherine is describing it now I for one take particular interest or curiosity towards 
her life review, not because of what she sees, but what she gets from it, the insight that she gains from it. She has all these all these uh, you know memories that she gets to see and zoom in on and pause and and look in more detail from other people's point of view and all those things that we've sometimes heard about being able to see from their lives but when it came down to it when it came down to the conclusion as she puts it it seemed to be that it wasn't so much about the wrong wrong things she did that seems to be the fear that religiously we sometimes fear when we you know go to heaven or or return to god we're worried that you know we're going to be condemned for the evil that we did and admittedly if we're evil there you know people are answering for those things by uh revisiting those things from all the perspectives of those who are affected so i don't think that's inaccurate in that sense but for her it didn't seem as though the bad things that she did were really what mattered but rather it was the things that she didn't do the things she neglected to do the inaction it's not that she saw it at least if I'm reading this right it's not that she saw inaction as sin as something to be condemned but rather that she came to this life to do some things, to make a difference, to, to act in love. And instead, she simply didn't. And if you have a mission, a purpose, something that you're here to do, and you're not even doing much of anything, you're living off Netflix and, and you know home-ordered food and just kind of putting in your hours at work, just living every day as one does, so to speak, not really doing anything, that is inaction. And we may even convince ourselves that we are terribly busy, even too busy to do other things. And if that's the case, if we're so busy doing inaction, then I'm sorry, you've got too much on your plate. You're not, if you don't have time for the most important things, then you've got too much on your plate. Get some of it off. Don't take the important things off. Take the unimportant things off. She says that it was concluded that when I return to earth, I must choose action and use my experiences and feelings to guide these actions so that they can be, so that they be an act of love. Let me dissect that slowly. I must choose action, so doing something, and then use her experiences, meaning her past, her uh, probably this experience, um, things that she's learned through time and so forth, used what she is learning and experiencing, and her feelings, her emotions, the the sense inside us that draws to do certain things, her experiences and her feelings, to guide her toward the actions that would be acts of love. Now, she doesn't go on to say what kinds of actions these would be, whether, you know, stopping and helping somebody on the side of the road, or are we talking about, you know, um, volunteering for 
some organization? Are we talking about just being more um, more aware of her children and their needs? It, she doesn't say. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the point. At least for us, it's not the point. Because for us, each individually, we have different purposes, different things that we're here to do, different things that we should be taking action on. And we can be guided by our experiences and our feelings to decide what those actions should be to ensure that they are acts of love. Now, I could move on, and I could, you know, go on to another subject, but I think this is worth further exploring. Because in our circles, in these circles of, you know, near-death experiences, spirituality, and so forth, there is a great um, draw toward meditation, which if you have been following this uh, podcast, you know that I highly encourage meditation, prayer, you know, spending time in quiet contemplation. That is not, first off, I'm going to say, that is not inaction. However, and this is the point, one of the points I want to make, it can be inaction if it is if it is taking up the majority of our time here on earth. We're not here to think about what to do. We're not here to focus on heaven. Though having it in the back of our mind all the time, or even fresh at the forefront of our mind, might help us to keep um, what's important in life in its proper perspective, at the forefront of our mind. And what I'm trying to say is, is don't avoid meditation. Rather, use meditation to gain insights into how you should spend your time. Use prayer and that time of, of thinking and feeling and exploring your experiences in order to let them guide your actions so, so that you can do these acts of love, whatever they be. So, of course, we have sleep. Of course, we have prayer and meditation, study, taking time to connect with God. And then we use what we learn from that experience to go into our lives on a daily basis and use that little bit of time every day to refresh our our batteries and and go into the next day or the coming day charged with a sense of what we should focus on, a sense of what we should be doing. Because that inaction will lead to more regrets than just about all of the things that you did, quote-unquote, wrong in your life. Your inaction is going to haunt you far more, both on the other side and here. You talk to those who are either on their deathbed or who are on hospice and so forth, know that they're coming to the end of their time here. And you ask them, what what regrets do you have? And they almost always revolve around what they didn't do or neglected to do. Now, don't think of it as this idea that you've got to be busy all the time. That's not what we're talking about. Most of us are busy throughout our lives. But much of what we're busy about is totally unimportant things. We're busy with inaction. Running errands is generally inaction. Not always, 
but it's generally inaction. When we are going from event to event to event, or, or I should say, you know, the, to work, to home, to dinner, to, you know, the TV, to whatever, we're going from inaction to inaction, or situations where we are just kind of carried through. Because work, I don't know about you, but when I have eight hours of work that is not something I'm passionate about, I am just filling time, and I can do it for eight hours straight. It's sort of painful. <laughs> Everybody who's experienced boring jobs or jobs they don't like can describe it such a way. And you may not necessarily have a choice in that matter about what kind of job you have. But when you have that eight hours of inaction, so to speak, spiritual inaction, and then you have, you know, several hours of recuperation time afterward, and a few minutes of relaxation or enjoyment time before going to bed, you're living out your life in inaction. Because from a spiritual perspective, not doing acts of love is inaction. That's how I'm reading this anyway. That's how I'm interpreting it. And I know we've talked a lot about how small things, you know, a smile, a wave, a, a phone call, um, can all be acts of love. And it's tempting to think from that, that I should be going around thinking, okay, now who can I serve? Let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll call so-and-so. Okay, I did that now. Uh, let's see, maybe I can go mow someone's lawn for them. Okay, now I should... And while if they are done with love, those are certainly acts of love, and we should have this attitude of being willing and able to serve at any time, but there is something more actionable about making a plan, coming up with ideas and carrying them forth. An example of this is uh, many near-death experiencers are encouraged, especially ones who have had really in-depth experiences, they're told on the other side, you're going to write a book about this. They often put it off for years because they don't want to write. They're just not interested in that. But once they get around to it and they start doing it, they start feeling a sense of purpose and they start feeling driven and motivated in ways that they maybe have never felt before. And you don't have to wait for either a near-death experience or some kind of of, you know, vision or dream or, or even meditative um, epiphany to come up with something to do that is meaningful. It might just be some ideas that have crossed your mind occasionally and you're now thinking, you know what, maybe I should do that thing. Maybe I should just try it. Worst case scenario, it doesn't take off, it doesn't really work, I hate it, and then I'm back where I was. No loss. But if, by chance, it turns out to be something that is deeply meaningful to someone, or possibly to many people, then you know you are living your life in action. And as you accomplish one action, or series of actions, you move on to the next. And as you have this attitude of, I'm a mover, I'm a spiritual mover, I am moving on from one thing to the next, action, a service, an act of love, a kindness, a project that's going to take six years to do. I'm going back to school, or I'm 
going to start a family like I've always wanted to do. Or maybe I want to write a book. Or maybe I want to... Whatever. I'll give you a simple example of this. That was exactly the kind of thought process that I was going through when I decided to do this podcast. I've done many other podcasts in the past. I've done several, and they never really caught on much, on totally different subjects, um, unrelated to near-death experiences. And, and I knew from that that there was a pretty good chance that my putting out this podcast, it would never really be viewed by more than, you know, a few friends and family, maybe. A couple people bumping across it on the internet and just going, what is this garbage, you know? That's, that, that's what I assumed would probably be the case. But I was determined to do action. Why? Because I felt compelled to do it. I felt drawn toward it. I, I shouldn't say compelled because it wasn't like this. I've got to do this thing. But it was more like, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, I, I've got to do something with this. It was this compulsion toward action. Let's put it that way. And the action that I decided I was going to do was put out a podcast. And from the messages that I've gotten from you guys almost daily getting these messages from you guys, I see it's making a difference for some people, for many people, far more than I expected. And I know sometimes when you get used to hearing a program, such as a podcast or seeing a TV show or something, you kind of put these people on some sort of um, celebratory pedestal of sorts, but I'm telling you, you guys, I am a very ordinary guy. I have, it, probably most of you know this, but I'm a very ordinary guy. I struggle with finances. I struggle with, you know, my career. It's hard. I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. I don't really know most of the time. And so I'm just this ordinary guy who's struggling through life. And among the other things that I do in my life. I'm kind of an action taker now. I've formed that habit, which is what got me to the point where I could do this podcast or was willing to do this podcast. But in the midst of this, among the other things that I was trying and failing at, I thought, I'll try doing this podcast. Let's see what happens. And it's made a huge difference. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back because that's not what this is about at all. What I'm trying to say is that thing that is either nagging you or maybe just that general nagging sensation that you should be doing something, that there's something more to your life to be doing, maybe it's time to put that to action. Do something with it. It may be volunteering. It may be, like I said, starting a family. It may be joining a social group. It may be going back to school. It may be something that uh, you've considered doing all your life. Something that you've always wanted to do and felt like someday you would do, but that you've put off because you're so busy being inactive. Spiritually inactive, anyway. You guys, I kind of feel like part of my purpose in doing this is to light the fire behind all of you that pushes you toward your life purpose. I don't know what it is. You probably don't even know what it is. But I'm telling you, you will only find it in taking action. And don't be afraid to get it wrong. When you look back on your life and you look at all the things that you tried to do, that you, that you 
went forth to do and that just failed, you're not going to regret having done those things. What you're going to do is you're going to say, I learned a lot about myself at those times. Let me give you an example. In my uh, own experience studying near-death experiences, I learned about this thing called hospice, which is working with people who and basically going to visit, um, just as a friend, visit people who are coming to the edge of death. So, you know, they're six months from or less from death, from what their doctors think and so forth. In general, that's what it's about anyway. And just being able to go sit with the people while their caretakers go shopping or, or have a break or have a nap or whatever, you know, it's just kind of to help help out a little bit and just be there, be their friend, talk with them and stuff. And I had really big excitement about the idea of doing this. I did it. I was a hospice volunteer for like three or four years. And, you know, I only ever had about three, maybe four patients that I ever visited. And any one of those, I don't think I ever visited more than four or five times. And most of the time it was kind of, oh, you're here again. Okay. It was very anticlimactic, let me just say. And that, I I put that on myself in terms of, of why it wasn't this profound experience, because I'm kind of introverted, I'm kind of shy, and, and I would try to talk to people, try to get them to tell some stories or something, and most of the time they just weren't into it, or, or they weren't feeling good, and so it was just kind of a, I'm just here kind of thing. I can say, it's not that I wasted for whatever years of my life, I didn't, I learned a lot about myself from that experience. Among them, hospice isn't my thing. Now, I know for a lot of people in this in, in this field that we're in, hospice is a really deeply rewarding thing. And maybe if I was more extroverted and said, you know what, can we talk about death? Can we talk about the near-death experience? Maybe it would have been more interesting. I don't know. But I just never felt like that was an appropriate thing to bring up with people. And it just never really became my thing, even though I was technically a volunteer for all that time. I feel like my service was not really of any use. Now, am I discouraged about that? Of course not. Of course not. I've done many other fun and cool things and interesting things, things that have touched lives and and so forth. And that's totally okay that I fail at so many things. And I'm not going to go through the list of things I failed at because this would be way too long of a podcast. And it, 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 my point is, don't be afraid to fail. Just get out there and start trying stuff, doing stuff. Try to, you don't even have to think of it as, okay, I'm going to do this in case this is my life purpose. You can just go forward saying, I'm going to see if I can find a way to, you know, put a little love out into the world. And what you'll find is when your mindset is one of love, that when that time comes that there are things that you are here to do and you find yourself in those situations, you will feel it. I'm not trying to say this vague thing that you hear on TV all the time, oh, when the time is right, you'll know. I'm sorry, most of the time I have not known. 
95% of the time, I have not known if I'm doing the thing in my life that I should be doing. But there will be times when you're doing, when you're taking action, that you'll feel something inside that basically tells you, I'm doing the right thing. There's a purpose for my doing this. And following those feelings will lead you into your own life path. And I do not care how old you are. You could be 98 listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, well, my life is over pretty much. I'm sorry, it is not. You are still here, you are listening, and you have things to do. They don't have to be amazing. They don't have to be great. You've just got to be taking action. And only you can know what kind of action that is. And with that, thank you again, all of you, so much for listening. Mm-hmm.